Romans 13. I started talking last week about the kingdom of God and authority, part one. We talked about how God has established the nations, how he gives authority to the nations, how the nations play a part in what God is doing in the earth, how God uses even ungodly leadership to accomplish his purposes. And if you haven't gotten it so far, you need to understand this principle. No matter what the devil does, he's going to lose. No matter what the devil does, he's going to lose. Did you know that God even has a plan for the devil? He does. And no matter what Satan does, God is going to work it together for good in the lives of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he can say what he says in Romans 13, that all authority is established by God. It doesn't matter what happens. If you're submitted to God, you can't lose. If you are in Christ, you will be victorious in the plan that God has for you. Now, that may not be entirely comfortable. It may not be the way you envision it. But God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us that will not be thwarted. So let's read this again, and then we're going to pray. Romans 13, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. By the way, I've got to tell you, this was, as a new Christian, this was, this was one of the most challenging verses in Scripture for me. Because I'd look at injustice in the world and I'd say, wait a minute, did God establish that? So stay with me. We're going to get to that. He says, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. Next time you get pulled over by the highway patrol, remember that he is God's servant to do you good. He is out to protect people from you speeding. Okay. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. I believe this is connected to the Lord's Prayer when he says, let no debt remain outstanding. In other words, we constantly need to forgive the debts of those that have offended us. So, Father, open our hearts today. These words can be challenging, and yet I feel there are deep truths, especially for the season in which we live, that you want us to hear how we should walk, how we should live, how we should relate to authority, how we should deal with injustices. How do we deal with leadership that is not aligned to you? Lord, these are things that you want your children to know. So open our ears, open our hearts to understand this today. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Number one, God has established all authority. He is the author of life. God created all things. He is the only absolute authority. Understand with me that all other authority in the universe is conditional besides God's. If you're a parent, your authority is conditional. If you're a ruler, if you're a president or a king or a dictator or whoever, really you're, you're still conditional. You only have partial authority. You don't have absolute authority. Something that I want every leader to say, and I've written this to our 
senators and congressmen at various times over the year. You need to know that someday you will stand before God and give an account for everything that you have said, everything that you have done. This goes for presidents, kings and queens, senators, dictators, judges, parents, employers, etc. All of us will stand before the Lord and give an account. When my son said to me when he was 12 years old, Dad, what gives you the right to tell me what to do? I said, well, that's a very good question. I said, I'm glad you asked it. I said, God has established the family as an authority structure. He's put children with parents until the age when they can stand on their own. And someday I'm going to stand before God and give a report, give an account of how I have led you as your father, how I've lived my life, if my words matched my actions, if I uh, honored the Lord and the way that I raised you. And he said, I didn't know that. Okay. And that was good. That was good enough for him. Because we need to know that there are limits on all authority. Now, some authorities get away with some pretty bad things on this planet. Isn't that true? You look at those and you go, how could that happen? God gives free will. He gives free will to people, and sometimes people do not steward very well the leadership or authority or the responsibility that God gives them. And that's where we have a problem as Christians. How do we deal with that? God also gives insights to leaders if they're willing to listen in the word. God is very compassionate. I love the fact that here's Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Janice for a while was studying Nebuchadnezzar. I think it was months that you were looking at that whole thing in Babylon, and the Lord just had you there, and you kept bringing things to me. And I thought, this guy is really a bad guy, you know? He was, a, he was a rotten ruler. I mean, this was a guy that he was like off with your head. It was worse than the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. You know, you made a mistake. He's ready to kill everybody. All right, you guys can't tell me what my vision was all about. I'm going to kill all 400 of you. Sorry, it's over. That's the kind of guy he was. But God loved him so much in the midst of all this and was intent on using him, and he sent Daniel as a counselor to teach him. By the way, take note of that. We're going to talk a little bit more about Daniel because Daniel learns to lead from the middle. Did you know you can be an influence in the life of a leader and you can turn things around without being the top person? Hello? God places people in certain places and times, like Esther, and says, you've been born for this time and this place. I have to believe, as a leader, that God has placed many of you in places to make a difference in the industry, in the business, in the profession, in whatever you're doing. He's put you there to be an influence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to step into that. You don't always have to be the top leader, but you need to be obedient to the Lord. Two, God calls us to a culture of honor and respect. There were many policies that President Obama followed that I was horrified about. I have to tell you straight out. When he said in 2008 that he believed that marriage was between one man and one woman, and in the interview with Rick Warren, he said, I'm in favor of traditional marriage, and then turned around, I thought, this is wrong. There was something in me that was so angry about that, and I thought, this guy is not only betraying what he said before, but he's opening a door of immorality and destroying traditional marriage in America. When a president opens a door like that, the spiritual impact of a nation is outrageous. How could he lie? How could he do that? But you know what? He was still our president. And when I spoke about him, I didn't use some of the names that people used about him. Somebody sent me an uh, e email about, it was a, a blog, from a blog site about how pastors are afraid to proclaim the truth. 
I hope you don't think I've ever been afraid, and I don't know if they were trying to tell me that. They didn't come right out and say it. Maybe they were afraid to tell me that I was afraid to say the truth. I'm not afraid to speak the truth, but that doesn't mean that I have to become ugly or hateful. And as far as I'm concerned, the whole time that President Obama was president, I prayed for him as the Lord directed me. See, you could give up and you could fight against authority or you could appeal to authority or you could pray to make a difference. And sometimes God makes you a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego to make a difference in a very evil place. The minute that you start becoming like evil to fight evil with evil, you've lost your authority in Christ. God can never bless hate. God can't bless anger that is expressed in the wrong way. Now, anger can be a righteous thing. But we also need to know that if we are angry in the wrong way, that we lose our ability to hear and see. We are called to honor and respect even those that we disagree with. There is a spirit of lawlessness that has been released in our land, and there is a disrespect and dishonor like I have never seen before in our country, and I'm very concerned about it. And it's not just here, it's worldwide. I'm going to tell you that behind it is the Antichrist spirit. It is an anti-law spirit. And by the way, the word for lawlessness, antinomia, without law, is, is the word that is used to describe the Antichrist. He's the lawless one, anomia. He's without law. He's without right or wrong. That is the spirit that has been unleashed in our land. If you, as a Christian, try to fight that spirit in the same spirit, you will become part of the lawlessness. Boy, it's quiet in here. Hear what I'm saying about that. The Lord has been speaking to me a lot about what's happening in our country, and he said a lot of leaders that started well, I'm talking about senators, congressmen, aides, all these people that are working in D.C., started out well, but they started to use carnal or natural weapons against spiritual forces, and they were taken captive by the enemy against their will. And that's why we have seen people go to Washington, D.C. and turn into something different than when they started. Because they are trying to fight a spiritual battle with carnal means. The other thing the Lord told me is distrust everything you are hearing on the news. And I want to tell you right now, there is a spirit that is attached to a lot. I love the news. I'm a new, I could be a news junkie. Janice knows. She'll say I need deliverance from the news. I just love, I love world events. I love studying different cultures. I love knowing what's going on and geopolitics and what's happening around the world. But I'll get on sometimes the news and I realize that most of it is not information. Most of it is disinformation, misinformation, or propaganda. If you don't know what disinformation is, come and talk to me later. The Russians invented it many years ago and I think some of our news agencies are perfecting it right now. There is a spirit of deception that is so heavy in our land. So is it going to do any good to get angry at the people in Washington or are we going to pray for them? If we lose our perspective and we start using carnal weapons against the spiritual problem, what's going to happen to us as Christians? And this is part of what Paul is telling us in Romans 13. He's saying, you need to be careful. We need to stay in a culture of honor. You know, I have to say this. Many years ago, I read a news story. I think it was in Skokie, Illinois 
were a group of neo-Nazis, and this is interesting because this is now 30 years ago and now we have a problem with this in our country. They were getting ready to protest in Illinois and the ACLU took their case because they weren't going to give them a permit and argue that they would be able, the ACLU. Why? Because they believed in First Amendment rights. Now the funny thing is nobody showed up for that protest except the neo-Nazis. Everybody just kind of ignored them and it went away. Okay? And I thought to myself, what is the ACLU doing defending them? Isn't that interesting? But there was this idea then, even among conservatives and liberal, that even if you did not agree with me, I was going to treat you with respect and honor, and we were going to listen to you, even if you had a strident voice. Now in our culture, there are people on both sides that are saying, you don't have a right to speak and you don't have a right to exist. And it's a dangerous place to be. As Christians, we need to realize that we may be part of this nation. We may be part of another country where you're from or whatever, but we need to be part of something even greater, and that's the kingdom of God. And God has a higher standard and a higher priority, and that means we treat even our enemies with respect and honor. Is that correct? There's a culture of honor. We have the right to disagree but not to dishonor and respect if you are a follower of Jesus. The next thing he says, God calls us in a, in a, in a culture of honor and respect to look at how we look at authority that is wrong and opposes God. All human authority will be flawed in some way. Do you know that? So if you want to say, I'm only going to follow authority that's perfect, you're sunk already. Wives, you're going to leave your husband. Employees, you're going to be dissatisfied with your employer. Think about this. All human authority is flawed. We need to approach wrong authority in humility and prayer. I want you to think about the example of Daniel. So Ashpenaz, who is Nebuchadnezzar's steward, comes to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, you're going to be fed from the king's table. Now, what was wrong with the king's table? That had to be really good food. All of the food that went to the king's table had been presented to the false gods, Bel and the other gods of that day. They had been part of the sacrifices, and the best of the sacrifices were brought to the table of the king. So for them to partake of that food and food that had been offered to idols in the mind of a Jewish young man was to defile themselves and to go against everything that they believed. So Daniel says, no way, dude, we're not going to eat your food. We're out of here. Right? See, Daniel shows amazing wisdom. And we need to pay attention to what Daniel does. You know what Daniel says to Ashpenaz? He says, I was reading this book called Win-Win. It was a book in the 90s, you know. That... No, he didn't say that. Remember the, remember the win-win philosophy? Find a way to the person who is opposing you. Help them to find a way to win along with you. Okay? They stole that from Daniel. <laughs> Daniel says to Ashpenaz, I'll tell you what. He said, I understand you're in a tight spot. This is the Pastor Joe edition of Daniel 1. <laughs> if you give us 10 days and you allow us to eat just vegetarian, just to eat the vegetables and not eat the food from the king's table, and we're not looking... 
healthy and we're not doing better than everybody else, then we'll do it your way, but I'm going to trust in my God. At the end of 10 days, Ashpenaz looked at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were doing really well, and he said, okay, we're going to do it your way. You see, before you go face-to-face and you resist authority, you need to find a way to appeal to authority in a godly way. And if you can appeal to authority and put God at the top of that equation where that authority... Now, Ashpenaz is starting to think, who is this guy's God? Who is Daniel's God? He said it would work out, and look what's happening there. Do you think that strategy will work in a situation where you work? It should. I've seen it happen in my life many times. Is there a time to resist authority? Yes. Most Christians throughout the history of Christianity believe that there are two times to resist authority, self-defense and just war. Self-defense is when something happens and either you or people that you're responsible for are being threatened by a force, and I believe that God gives us the ability to defend yourself. Now, I've got to tell you that there are some Christians that are pacifists. I respect that. Did you know that Pentecostals were pacifists all the way up until World War II? And then they changed because World War II, there was such a clear evil, that's when they changed. But let me give you an example here. Let's talk about abortion for a minute. Okay, we'll pick an easy subject. You live in China. And in China, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Chinese government imposes forced abortion on women. How many of you knew that? Which means they can come to your house, they can take you out, and they can abort your baby. They will even drug people. I mean, it's terrible what they do. I think that is... That reaches the measure of self-defense and resistance against authority. Do you hear what I'm saying? You say, where do you get that in the Bible? Oh, Moses. Remember the two ladies that were the midwives? God blessed them. Why? Because they disobeyed Pharaoh and they did things their way and they preserved the life of those children. Now, let me tell you, there are steps, and we don't have time to go into just war theory, although that would be another nine-month series, okay, starting back in 600 A.D. But if you look at that, before you do active resistance, you do passive resistance. You do everything you can peacefully before you take action. But there's a time when sometimes you just have to go to war. Where do you draw a line? When you've done everything you can and there's nothing else to do, that's what just war is. And by the way, just war, according to biblical theology, not only was when to go to war, but it also had limits to warfare. That's where the Geneva Convention came from that protects prisoners that have been caught in war. Is there a time to resist authority? Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, verse 18, they called them in. Remember, Peter and John were preaching, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John refused to stop preaching about Jesus. But notice, they also seem willing to accept the consequences of doing so. And sometimes when we show passive resistance... 
We call it uh, civil disobedience. Martin Luther King Jr. was a great example of somebody that used this. Uh, Gandhi was another one in India that used uh, the tactics of Jesus, the passive resistance. They did not use force. Uh, it, and they did not dishonor or disrespect authority, but they did things to stand up for what they believed in. Did you know Martin Luther King Jr., after his house was bombed, applied for a gun permit and the government wouldn't give him one? Very interesting. And yet, he never stopped in the face of cannons, water cannons, and dogs. They just kept marching. They kept sitting at counters. They kept riding buses. And pretty soon, people saw what was going on, the injustice and the outcry, and things began to change. I think before we take, is there a time to take active to go to war? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced that as a Lutheran pastor in World War II in Germany. He and others in the confessing church had a hard decision to make. Is Hitler so evil? And have we gone from somebody who's a foolish ruler to somebody who's a downright evil ruler that gives us the right to topple this government? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of a plan. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie, it's all about this plan to assassinate Hitler because they felt that he was, if you read his book, how many of you have read Mein Kampf? I know it's real popular right now. It's the number one book in Egypt right now. You thought I was kidding, didn't you? In the Arab world, it's still on the top of the list. He talks about the absolute solution. Anybody that read Mein Kampf knew that he was out to destroy all the Jews. Just read the book. I took it out of the library when I was in college, and everybody was just glaring at me. It was like, you, you, you know. And I thought, I said, I'm a political science major. They said, okay. I don't think it's something we should do easily. And if you read Bonhoeffer's book, it's a great book to read. There was such a struggle in his heart and mind. There's a time to take up arms, but know when you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That there are consequences. Know when you stand for passive resistance. And I, and I believe there's a time to do it, and there's a, there's a time not to do it. Let me share one other thing, and we'll move on. I had a student at Kent State many years ago that came to me. And he said to me, he said, give me an excuse not to blow up the abortion clinic in Akron. So when you're an advisor of the group and a campus pastor, you're thinking, uh-oh, this is a hot potato. And I said, well, I said, uh, have you done everything you can nonviolently? And he said, no, what would you recommend? And I said, well, I think you need to pray about this. I said, but those people are going in voluntarily by their own will. The government is not opposing this. I don't think this rises to the place of just war where you can do something violent like that. And I said, if you destroy other lives and property, how do you know you're not going to take somebody out that's innocent? He said, okay. He said, you're making a good point. I'll pray about that. So he, shortly after that, went and chained himself to the door uh, so the people could not get through the door. They had to go through him, and he shared the gospel with everybody that came to cut the chains and get him off the door, apparently. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus before Pilate is the basis for how Christians interact with human law. In John 8 33, Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate then goes inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? 
Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Very interesting words that Jesus says here. This sets us apart from Islam. It sets us apart from almost every other world philosophy. We are part of a higher kingdom. Jesus submitted to God's hired plan and suffered at the expense of human government. Did you ever think of that? He acknowledged that we are citizens of a higher kingdom. There was a moment coming that Jesus intimates when his servants are going to fight on his behalf, and there's going to be quite a battle. It will be no contest. All the nations that oppose him, there will be no contest. And yet Jesus was saying, this is not yet the moment of armed conflict when all justice will be restored on the earth. As citizens of God's kingdom, we need to honor the higher priorities of the kingdom of God. Most Christians that believe this in the lands in which they've lived have had to make a decision when there's a war. Is this a war that I can support? That's a hard decision sometimes. Sometimes it's an easy decision. For most of uh, my family, my uncles, my father, my father-in-law, and uh, for them it was a very simple solution because they saw the evil of Nazi Germany and, and Hitler, etc., but we need to follow Jesus' example. We need to transform the kingdom of the world through persuasion by proclaiming truth in love. We come to serve and not to conquer. Does this make sense? Yet in a sense, there's a spiritual conquering through prayer, but it's not through arms or physical violence. And I say that because sometimes people hear us talk about uh, spiritual warfare and they think that we're a, uh, one of those strange groups that are stockpiling weapons. Yeah. Spiritual warfare is spiritual warfare. It's prayer, okay? Christians and Western culture find themselves in an increasingly hostile environment, and it's important that we understand these principles. I just want to take a quick comparative look of the main, I, I believe there are four main forces that are battling on the globe right now, and I want you to see the difference here in how we as the kingdom of God need to approach life and things that are happening on the planet and some of the other groups that are here and why there is such a battle happening right now. The Christian code of ethics. Let's take a real quick look at this. We serve the one true God, creative of heaven and earth. He is holy and righteous and all-powerful, all-knowing. His name is Yahweh. Yahweh sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. He's the redeemer of mankind. He is the only way to salvation. All human beings are made in God's image. They have inherent worth to God, whether they believe in God or not. This sets us apart from a lot of other philosophies that are operating on the planet right now. Because they believe, if you don't agree with me, you have lesser value and you have no place in the marketplace to speak your uh, message. Does that make sense? We need to understand with Christianity that we believe that everybody, whether they agree with us or not, whether they're atheist, communist, whether they are whatever their gender orientation, they are all made in the image of God. They have worth, inherent worth to God. And this is where Christian ethics starts in the way that we treat other people. Does that make sense? All followers of Jesus, number four, treat other human beings with respect, honor, and dignity. If people disagree with Jesus, we don't kill them. Now, there were some errant moments in history when the church was off its rocker 
and, uh, and they did kill people in the name of Christ. Well, the Crusades, we can, talk, we can have another class about that, but there were years of, hundreds of years of Islamic incursion and destroying civilization after civilization. The Crusades were, Crusades were a reaction to that. But yes, they did it in the wrong way. Again, what are we doing? We're taking the sword in the wrong way. But if people disagree with us, we don't desire to destroy them, and we don't desire to take away their ability to live and be in the marketplace. We say, okay, we respect your right to live. Do we understand that the rights that we have in America are essentially based in Protestant theology? When this country was founded, that is what informed uh, of the founding of our government documents. By the way, the American Constitution isn't perfect, but I think it's a pretty good attempt at, at giving people rights. I've been reading the United Nations Bill of Rights. It does not compare, folks. Have you read that? Have you read their plans, Plan 24 and whatever, how they want to terraform the globe? If you support global government, you need to know what you're getting into. If you want to read it and talk to me, it's all on the Internet. Read it. It's very interesting. They want to move people groups around the world, by the way, okay, and kind of globalize everything, which is what... Nebuchadnezzar did when he conquered other countries. Just a thought. God does not call us to kill in his name. We may be called to lay down our lives for him or for others, but we're never called to kill in the name of God. Number seven, we acknowledge the right of self-defense and defense of others in our care through just war. But that's not an easy decision to make and should not be done lightly. God gives government to protect order. We are called to support our leaders in prayer. 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks to be made for all men, for kings who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. One of the things that sets Christianity aside from Islam is we don't seek to establish a government that will rule over people. We seek to influence through service and through love and the way that we think we seek to influence the governance we're part of. But Jesus respected, he understood that there was secular law that was out there, so to speak. And that's what Peter is ta- or excuse me, Paul is talking about in Romans 13. And there are some Christians, by the way, that want to create a Christian government in the United States. The only thing that frightens me about that is how they would administrate it. Because my kids went to Christian schools, and I found out some of the teachers were more despotic than, let me just say that. The politically correct code of ethics. Let's take a quick look at this real quickly. This is essentially what they believe, political correctness. There are different ways of saying this. Every system of belief and truth is equal except those that believe in absolute and objective truth, such as Orthodox Jews and Christians, evangelical Christians. People who are absolutists, who believe in an unchanging objective understanding of what is true, moral, or just, have no place in society. They are intolerant. Because they're intolerant, they have no right to... Now, they don't see their intolerance in this. Okay? Number three, I demand that you approve everything I believe and how I live. If I can establish that I have become a victim, I may be entitled to special rights. Number four, I demand that you publicly approve my beliefs and my lifestyle. This is, by the way, what's been happening over the last 20 years, step by step. Number five, I demand that all who publicly disagree with me are branded a hater. And finally, I demand that all haters be punished by law and excluded from the rights given to society. Essentially, they have no place. They should not be contributing to society. 
This is essentially what political correctness teaches. This is the primary worldview of our universities. Am I fearing man here? Just wanted to check. Sorry, I don't want to be defensive. I love everybody. Let's look at the Muslim code of ethics. And then I'm going to point something out to you that you'll find very interesting. The Muslim code of ethics, systematically denying the right of all non-Muslims, is seen in all Muslim-majority or Islamic countries. Uh, I've looked at the countries that are out there. Malaysia, if you uh, convert somebody to Christianity, you go to jail for seven years. Saudi Arabia, you're not allowed to bring a Bible in the country. You're not even allowed to talk about Christianity. When George Bush had uh, uh, people in a base... Remember in Saudi Arabia, we had a military base. They made them go in a ship off the coast to have a Thanksgiving service because they didn't want a Christian service on their soil. Let me tell you, I think we have what we call some allies that aren't really allies. And America has long ago departed from any semblance of a Christian nation. I'll just say that right there. I I really wonder what really drives our policy is money. Okay? This is what Muslims essentially believe. There is one God, his name is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Essentially, that's it. That's what they believe. I didn't say it. Because if you say that, you become a convert. He is not. It's a different name. He is not the God of the Bible at all. That's right. And we have, uh, somebody gave us some information out there. I think we have them on Muhammad. They're on the table if you, uh, they're left over from a couple weeks ago. They also demand that all the world acknowledge the, the above statement. There's no tolerance in any, if you believe Sharia law, you do not allow any other religion to function in your land. It's a defilement. How many of you knew that? In the five pillars of Islam, the principle of jihad demands that Muslims seek world domination by Islam. I've seen their stated policies. It can come by moving to another country and having as many children as you can. It can come through uh, buying influence, through uh, indoctrination through universities, through schools, whatever. It can also come by out-and-out terror and intimidation. Number four, anyone who does not acknowledge that's supposed to be Allah and his prophet are kafir, meaning infidels. People of the book who are Christians and Jews, they call us people of the book, are demi. How many of you have, have, have ever had a uh, demitas cup, a small cup of Turkish coffee? It's the same word. It means half. A demi is a half person. You have half standing in court. You don't have the full standing of a person. And you, in many cases, I have a friend, I won't tell you what country, that lives in a uh, Muslim country. He pays jizya. Jizya is the tax that people of the book have to pay to live in that country. You pay a penalty to live there because you are not a Muslim. They are only people without full rights. How many of you know that a woman does not have the same rights of a man? If a woman is raped in Islam, she has to have at least three people that were witnessed that will stand up in court, and even then, uh, it's probably not going to be enough against the testimony of one man who disagrees. That's what Sharia law is all about. People who are not Muslims are inferior and of lesser value and not worthy of rights and are not allowed to participate in business or government and not allowed to own land. The goal of Islam is to impose Sharia law. This law is considered a higher law than any other government law by a majority of Muslims. I figured out, I looked at Sharia, and I looked at our Bill of Rights. Immediately, four of our major rights on the Bill of Rights are gone, just like that. Free speech is gone. Have any of you read a book about Muhammad? 
an honest look at his life? No, because everybody that writes it is killed. It's not tolerated. I have one now. There was a guy that visited our church two weeks ago. He wrote one, and he's got it. He's got the movie online. I'll share it with you. If you want it? It's pretty well done. If you're a woman, do you have rights in with Sharia law? So I want to ask you a question. Why is it that the politically correct group and the Islamic group are okay with one another? Do you know why? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, they're both driven by an antichrist spirit. And number two, they both hate Christians. What I've learned by studying as a political science major, I did a lot of study about revolution. And at one point, I considered myself a communist. Okay, now you know it about your pastor. <laughs> I told the guys in my men's group on Saturday morning, I said, if people got Paul's resume and they go, okay, this guy's been in jail how many times? <laughs> We're okay. But I was very enamored by communism. But as I began to study it, I realized that communism has this transitional phase where they appeal to people in a very, it's kind of a, let me just say it's sexy, stylistic way that it's just a cool thing to be, to bring social justice and whatever. But once the people get in power, literally millions of people die. Remember I told you about the wacky Christians that kind of got off base and they killed people? Historians tell us that the most of the people who were killed by Christian crusaders was about 1.1 million. That was over about 170 years of the Crusades. Do you know how many people were killed by communism in the 20th century? They're saying 120 to 145 million. Stalin killed 5 million people in Georgia, Russia alone by starving them out. He literally cut off their supply of food. We're talking genocide at levels that you can't imagine. And you follow that all the way through Pol Pot and some of the other. There's not a good record there. As Christians right now, we are in the midst of a spiritual war that is going on. And you can say, I could get mad at these people. I'm going I'm to stock, stock guns and tuna fish and they're going to take my house. Can I tell you something? We need to pray. There is a real ideological battle, and you need to know how to think, and you need to be honest about what's going on. Did you know that most of our media outlets will not allow people to talk about the truth about Islam? And if you do, they call you a hater. We're, we're being intolerant. So one of the major news polling agencies last year came out with a poll and they found out 51% of Muslims that live in the United States favor Sharia law over our Constitution. And those, those results, that was a, a legitimate polling, not a Christian or what you would consider a rightist poll, polling. It was a... So my result, my... Response to this is not to go out and try to kill Muslims. As a matter of fact, I want to see God bring them to understand Jesus because these people have been lied to. People say, well, we need to shut down our borders. Can I tell you, God has brought these people here so that we can reach out to them in love? And if the church ignores them and we draw inside and we become fearful, what's going to happen? 
So this is what we need to do. We need to be honest about what's happening. We need to understand the spiritual root. We need to roll up our sleeves and we need to get busy about bringing people to understand who Jesus is. This is what God wants us to do. It's not a moment to panic and be in fear and align with political organizations that are hating. But it's to rise up as the kingdom of God and be the church and be the people of God because the Lord is doing something supernatural in our day and we need to see beyond what people see in the natural. Globalism, we don't have time to go through all this, but let me just say this. There's a history of globalism in the Bible. There is one uh, economist that talks about three levels of globalism. I like the way he looks at it. There's global trade. I'm in favor of that. There's global cooperation in international laws and treaties. I think that we should be involved in that. The third level of globalism is one global government that rules over all. This supersedes national boundaries. I'm not in favor of that. Because nobody's shown me a bill of rights and nobody's told me who's going to lead that. So it's not real simple. When people say, are you in favor of globalism? I say, yeah, global trade, no problem. I love the nations. I love to trade. Okay? I love all that. But we need to be wise about this and understand the Bible says at the end of time there is a global leader that controls all things so that you cannot buy or sell. He controls who you worship. And if you don't worship the right thing, you don't get to buy food. He's called the Antichrist. And the Antichrist spirit is already at work in our day. As your pastor, as your shepherd, I am here to lovingly warn you. And by the way, when Jesus says all these things, I'm going to close with this. I've had people say to me, I I just don't want to deal with the heavy-duty stuff. Jesus talked about the heavy-duty stuff. And I don't talk about it all the time. If you're here, you know I love to talk about happy things. But this is a serious thing that we need to look at. I want you to, just Matthew 24, verse 6. Jesus is telling these guys what the end of the world is going to be like. And he says something that we need to take heed to. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. This is not to create fear. This is to awaken our hearts. We need to pray like we've never prayed before. Don't get sucked up in the news and get angry and all that. Instead, get caught up in the Spirit of God and start to pray like you've never prayed before. We have people in our town, I've heard from the Bhutanese, and we just got an invitation to go to a cultural festival with the Bhutanese, the Nepalese over in North Hill. I've heard from some of the pastors there, they're experiencing such a revival, hundreds of these people coming to know Jesus. I say invade our city even more. They're great folks. May they all come to know the Lord. Okay? And we want to do all we can. We're going to send, as a matter of fact, we're sending Phil and Brenda. They're going to go to this event, and they're going to represent our church there. God has plans. In a moment, he can shift things. Would you pray with me? And if anybody has taken on a spirit of fear because of what is happening these days, it's not from the Lord. It should be a spirit that sobers us and moves us to action and think correctly. Can we stand together? Heavenly Father, we just look at what is happening in the world around us. 
And Lord, we know that there are strong spiritual forces. Lord, we would be alarmed if you had not told us this is the way it was going to be. You told us at the end of days, this is the way it was going to be. And when I say that, Lord, I don't know if it's 100 years from now. I don't know whatever. I just know that I'm seeing the signs. But Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to be everything you've created to be in these days. That we would be in the center of your will, set apart to your purpose. And Lord, I pray that you would wake up the church. That you would give us a heart for the people around us. Lord, something that sets us apart from all others is that we are called to love even our enemies. We are called to proclaim your truth. Lord, just help us to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. But I pray that you would wake up the church. Lord, deliver our hearts from fear, that there would be no fear because of the things in our days. But Lord, that you would just watch over us in all that we do and that you would lead us in paths of righteousness and set divine appointments where we can influence people that need to know you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Bless you, God.